passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. get ready to dive in a quick question for you guys how many of you have ever gone rock climbing any rock climbers here one scotty in the back okay anybody over here rock climbers i thought i would get a lot more rock climbers i didn't have many in in first service either yeah um but i clocked i rock climbed you know when i was in uh, high school I actually did it at summer camp and, you know, went up some rock faces. One thing I learned is the higher up you go, the scarier it becomes. Pretty simple. But it's not that bad because you have this thing called a rope. And if you fall, which I did a number of times when I was rock climbing, at least you have the safety of the rope to, to catch you. But there's a style of rock climbing out there that doesn't use a rope. Maybe you've heard about it. It's called free solo climbing. It is climbing a rock all by yourself with no safety measures whatsoever. You slip, you fall, you die. There's a guy out there who's world famous right now. His name is Alex Honnold, and he is an extreme free solo rock climber. And in June of 2017, he climbed El Capitan in Yosemite. Some of you are like, well, what's that? It is a granite rock, 3,400 feet tall. To put that in perspective, that's more than twice the height of the Empire State Building. People did not think it was humanly possible to climb that. The handholds sometimes are only the size of a quarter, and all they are is an indentation in a granite rock, not even a full finger grip, just an indentation. But that's what free solo climbing is like. To give you an idea of what that looks like, uh, there was actually a film crew that filmed Alex Honnold when he, when he climbed El Capitan. So let me show you just a little brief portion of that movie.
I'll say it for you. That is crazy. Man, he did it in three and a half hours. Before that, the world record was four hours with ropes. Nobody had ever free solo climbed it before. Crazy, crazy stuff. But you know, free solo climbing, extreme rock cliffs like that is not a new thing. People have been doing that for years. They've been doing it throughout history. And you probably didn't know, but it's free solo climbing like that is even found in the Bible. It's found in the chapter that we are about to study this morning. Pretty cool stuff. So take out your Bibles, take out your notes. We are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're studying our way through 1 Samuel. Last week we were in 1 Samuel uh, 13. 1 Samuel 13 and chapter 14 actually go together. It's just one story. So last week was sort of a part one. This week is a part two, as we're gonna only study the first 23 verses. And then in two weeks, after we go through graduation Sunday next week, we'll come back and look at what is really a part three to the whole story. So that's a brief overview of how we're doing this. On your outline, let's start on the top with number one, which is some background. I need to give you some background because remember, this is all one story between these two chapters. Back in 1 Samuel 13, what we saw um, was Jonathan, King Saul's son, did something that, that Saul should have done a long time ago. When Saul was first anointed king by Samuel, he was told to take out the Philistine garrison, the garrison of soldiers that was at Gibeah, which was deep in the heart of Israelite territory. But instead of obeying Samuel, Saul sort of chickened out and did absolutely nothing about it. Then after about a year, when Saul was finally firmly established as king, you would think at that point, Saul would actually get around to doing what he should have done about a year before. And he didn't. But what he didn't do, his son Jonathan did. Jonathan took out the Philistine garrison at Gibeah, completely wiping them out, destroying them. And you can guess what the Philistines felt about that. They weren't happy. And they declared war on the Israelites. And last week we saw it didn't look like it was going to be a fair fight at all. Because the Philistines came and they had 30,000 chariots. Chariots in the ancient world are a little bit like the equivalent of tanks today. They had 6,000 in the cavalry. And then when it came to foot soldiers, it says there was as many as the sand on the seashores, more than you could ever possibly count. And to make matters worse, the Israelites didn't even have iron weapons. The Philistines had seen fit to make sure that there was no blacksmith among the Israelites. So the Philistines had metal swords. They had, they had steel or iron javelins. They had iron shields. But the Israelites, they are going to be fighting against them with nothing more than sticks and stones. There was two swords. Two swords in the entire army. One for Saul and one for Jonathan. And that was it. Now, when it came to um, Saul's army, it didn't look like it was doing too well. He had started with 3,000 enlisted soldiers and actually called out the reserves. But when uh, his army started to see the size of the Philistine army, we had a lot of people that went AWOL. 
that sort of abandoned Saul. In fact, he was down to about 600 soldiers. And to make matters worse, last week in chapter 13, we saw that Saul messed up like big time. Samuel had given him the instructions that what he was to do is after attacking the Philistine garrison at Gibeah, he was to go to Gilgal and then wait there for seven days for Saul to arrive. Saul would, or excuse me, Samuel would offer the burnt offerings and the peace offerings before the battle. And then Samuel would give Saul the instructions about what to do as he went into the battle. But as Saul saw the size of the Philistine army amassing and he saw his own armly continuing to dwindle down to a smaller and smaller size he became impatient he didn't wait he directly disobeyed God's command he offered the burnt offerings and he offered the peace offerings to go into the battle before Samuel arrived and as a result there were consequences because he disobeyed God his dynasty would not continue. His son, Jonathan, would not go in his place as king. Now, when we finished First Samuel, it looked like the battle was about to begin. The Philistines were getting ready to enter into battle with the Israelites. But as we turn the page and start chapter 14 this week, all of a sudden we head into a different direction. Instead of seeing Samuel leading, instead of seeing Saul lead his army into the battle, we quickly see Jonathan. Now, last week, Jonathan did what his father should have done. He attacked the Philistine garrison at Gibeah. This week, we're going to see Jonathan actually acts as the man, the kind of man his father should have been. Jonathan is a man of daring faith. In fact, we're going to build the rest of our study off that very theme. What does it mean to have daring faith? Faith that dares. What does it look like? There's going to be three points that we're going to see as we work through the text. And look at how Jonathan's faith is so different from his father's faith. So let's begin. Let's look at this. Daring faith must be willing to take risks, which we find is the first point. Verse one. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. We're beginning to get an impression of what kind of young man Jonathan was. Jonathan was a man who liked to take risks. He liked to push the envelope a little bit. Now, I'm not saying stupid teenage kind of risks. That's not the kind of risk that Jonathan took. Jonathan took well thought through, calculated risks. They were risks of faith. He was willing to trust God. He was willing to obey God and hope that God would come through for him. Jonathan reasoned, if God had enabled him to successfully defeat the Philistines at Gibeah, which started the war, then God would enable him to successfully defeat the Philistines at Michmash as they continue the war. Even though it looked like the Philistines were far more in number than they ever expected. 
Then it continues with this. But he did not tell his father. Quite honestly, I sort of understand that. If my son was going single-handedly into a battle against the Philistines when there is that many Philistine opponents, I don't think I'd want to know either. But there's more to it than a son who doesn't want to freak his father out here. Jonathan and Saul, they may be father and son, but they're men cut from completely different pieces of cloth. Saul is a man who struggles with faith, struggles to trust God. Remember last week he sort of prematurely offered the sacrifices because he wouldn't trust God. He also struggles to obey God. But Jonathan is quite the opposite. As we're going to see beginning this week and in future weeks, he is a man with great faith, great confidence in God, willing to do daring things for God. And in the rest of the scriptures that speak about him, we don't ever hear of him disobeying God. He is a faithful man. So everything that Saul lacks, Jonathan possesses. Now, as we continue to the next verse, we leave Jonathan, we leave his armor bearer hatching a plan to attack the Philistines at Michmash, and our eyes turn back to King Saul. What was he doing while his son was hatching a daring plan? It says this, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. Now, the Philistines, we know, had gathered at Michmash for battle, but Saul was not anywhere near the battlefield. He was now on the outskirts of Gibeah, a long way from the battlefield. Go ahead and put that a map up there. So you can see where Michmash is. Gibeah is a long way away, getting away from the action. And it says here that he was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah. The Hebrew is interesting because you could also translate staying as sitting. So he is sitting out here. It says in the ESV that he's in a pomegranate cave. But if you look at the footnote in your Bible, you can see the alternate translation is pomegranate tree. Apparently, this is a... um, kind of an area where they grow pomegranates. They have a pomegranate tree. There's a cave in this area. Great place for you to sit under. Great place to get out of the sun. Great place to relax. Remember, he's sitting. He's having some fruit snacks, pomegranate fruit snacks. So you picture Saul far from the battle, sitting in the shade of a tree with his feet up, drinking an Arnold Palmer, eating some fruit snacks. What a contrast to Jonathan, isn't it? Jonathan is taking initiative. Jonathan is on the front line. Jonathan is figuring out what to do with the Philistine invaders. Jonathan is set for action. Saul, far from the front line. Saul with his feet up. Saul under the shade of a tree. Saul eating fruit snacks. Now, which kind of leader would you like to follow? A Saul or a Jonathan? I think it's really clear right now who actually the true leader is. It's actually the son, not the father. 
Now, as we continue, the lens here zooms out a little bit, gives us a wider angle. It doesn't just look at what Saul is doing sitting under this pomegranate tree, but it tells us about the people that are actually around him at this point. It says, and the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Saul has his tiny little army of 600 men that are around him. Not too impressive. Everybody else has abandoned him. But then it talks about Ahijah is with him. He's a priest. And you start to say, wait a minute, I thought Samuel was Saul's spiritual counsel in the last chapter. How does Ahijah get in the picture? If you were with us last week, you remember that after Samuel finally arrived and he saw that Saul has disobeyed God, Samuel speaks to him and Samuel left him. At this point, Saul is rudderless. He has no end for spiritual guidance, no one for spiritual counsel, so he attaches himself to a priest named Ahijah. Now it gives us his genealogy. And as soon as we see a genealogy, we're like, okay, skip those sections. Don't skip this one. This genealogy is not purposeless. It is very purposeful. Ahijah's father is a man named Ahitub. Ahitub, it said, is a brother of Ichabod. Wait a minute. We remember Ichabod. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Remember, his name means the glory has departed. He was born when his father died. And his name means that God has rejected that priestly line. His father was Phineas of the infamous sons, Hophni and Phineas from 1 Samuel chapter 2, who were Eli's sons. Remember, these guys are the ones who were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. They were eating the fat portions of the offering that were to be reserved only for God. They were also sleeping with the women who worked at the temple and God struck both of them dead on the same day and God has, from that point forward, rejected that line of the priesthood. That's why Ichabod's name literally means God's glory has departed from these men and their spiritual counsel. But now Saul, whose glory is departing from him, has attached himself to a line of priests who where God's glory has also departed. I guess they're a good match. God is no longer working through that line of priesthood and God is in the midst of his glory departing from Saul as well. That's what the author wants us to see. That's why we have um, this little genealogy there. So we have a contrast here. Saul and Jonathan, they're the only two men in the Israelite army who have swords. Saul, we will see, keeps his sword in its sheath. He stays away from the action. He stays seated. He eats his fruit snacks. And he's sort of getting counsel 
from somebody whose glory has departed. God is no longer working through them. Jonathan is the opposite. He takes his sword out of its sheath. He gets in the battle. He's on the front line of the action. He's having daring faith. He's taking all the risks. Which of these two leaders do you think God is going to end up helping? Which of these two leaders do you think God is going to end up working with? Let's follow the story and we'll see. And then it says in verse 3, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And you say, what's the significance of this? I think what the author wants us to see is the level of disorganization that is present in the tiny little army that Saul has around him. They're not broken up into smaller commanding units. They're not broken up into small organizational units. When Jonathan and the armor bearer leave, nobody even knows, even though they've been gone for a long time. Saul's army looked like cattle just grazing around the pasture, pointlessly, aimlessly milling around, not doing anything. Now we return to the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Remember, they have traveled. They've traveled from Gibeah. They're heading up to Michmash. We learned last week that as you get to Michmash, there is a deep, deep valley on the edge of Michmash that runs east to west. It's a long valley. Later in the message, I'm going to give you some drone footage of that valley so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. But that valley essentially separates the Philistine army in the north from Saul and his army in the south, it is an almost impossible for them to effectively across to attack one another. And we see a little bit of information about this valley here in the next verse. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Gibeah. Now we read that and nothing really strikes us. Well, that's probably because we do not use the word crag in everyday English. Just simply look that one up in the Webster Dictionary. It's cliff. The Hebrew is also clear. It's a rock cliff on one side and a rock cliff on the other side. The one name of the one is Bozes. In Hebrew, that means slippery, like no handholds, like sheer rock face. The name of the other is Sina, which means thorny in Hebrew. In other words, the other side has lots of rocks that jut out on it. So there's ways to hide behind those rocks. There's rocks to, to grab on. But this is um, what are on one side and the other of this deep valley. Now, this gets really good. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Boy, that's 
Good stuff there. Let's spend a little bit of time unpacking this great wisdom of Jonathan. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Saul, when he saw the size of the Philistine army and the dwindling size of his own army, he said, we're all going to die. I better hurry up and offer the sacrifices and get into the battle before the odds get worse. Jonathan is not afraid of those odds. He says, you know what? It doesn't matter. Nothing can hinder the Lord if he wants to save us. It doesn't matter if there's many and it doesn't matter if there's few. Jonathan understands that the outcome does not depend on the size of the army. It depends on the size of our God. Doesn't he? He gets it. His father does not get it. And you may wonder, what is Jonathan seeing that his father is missing? Here's what I think is happening. Jonathan is somebody who knows his Bible history. He knows how God has worked in the past, and he realizes that if God has saved his people against incredible odds with only one or two people stepping forward with daring faith in the past, God is perfectly capable of saving his people again with only one or two people stepping forward in daring faith again. God will do again what he's done in the past. And I think he just went in his mind back probably only about 200 years to the book of Judges. That's exactly what predates the book of 1 Samuel. What do we see in Judges? Remember Judges chapter 3? We have a man who was a judge named Ehud. At the time, it was the Moabites who were oppressing the Israelites. Ehud went single-handedly to the king of the Moabites named Eglon and assassinated him. And that began a rebellion that ended up in the Israelites freeing, being freed. It was the daring faith of Ehud that God used to save his people. More in Judges chapter three. We read a little tiny section about a man named Shamgar who using an ox goad, which is sort of a a simple kind of weapon, struck down 600 Philistines. That's a lot. The daring faith of one man was used by God to free his people from Philistine oppression. Or maybe most famous of all comes from Judges chapter six. Remember the story of Gideon? At the time that the Midianites were oppressing the Israelites and God called Gideon to rise up against the Midianites. And so Gideon went and he struck down an altar of Baal. And of course the Midianites were not real happy about that. we're going to go fight against him. And a lot of Israelites came around Gideon to support him. In fact, 32,000 people came to be part of Gideon's army. And God says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's too many. If anybody is afraid of dying or fighting, tell them to go home. And 22,000 of the 32,000 left. And God looked at that and said, that's still too many. We have to thin the ranks even more. Bring them down to the brook. Let them drink. And he says, you know, if everyone who puts their face into the brook and drinks that way, send them home. 
But the ones who scoop the water with their hands and lick it like a dog from a bowl, that's not a good statement of what they're like, by the way. Keep those guys. And you end up with only 300 of these men left. The guys who lap up their water like a dog drinking from a bowl. And God takes that tiny army and uses it to send 120,000 Midianites running. God saved his people by few. In fact, God seems to like to save his people when the odds are really bad by few because then God gets more glory and more credit for the rescue, doesn't he? And Jonathan says, if that's how God's worked in the past, but the daring faith of those men, maybe he'll work the same way today if he'll use our daring faith in the same way. Little point of application for you here. The way to have daring faith that takes risks for God is to know how God responded to the daring faith of his people in the past and then know he is still responding to the daring faith for his kingdom today. Isn't that true? One of the things that Jonathan did is he considered the way God worked in the past. He knew that God will most likely work in a very similar way in our lives today. Not guaranteed that it'll be the same, but many times it will. How does God work in the past? Let's give you some applications on this. Remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they found their back to the Red Sea and then the Egyptian army was bearing down on them and there was no way they could see to escape. They were facing certain death. And then what did God do? He opened an unseen and unexpected way for them. He parted the Red Sea. They walked across on dry ground and when the Egyptians sought to go in after them, the waves came crashing down upon them. That's the way God worked in the past. Oftentimes, it's the same way he works today. Have you ever found yourself in a position in life where it looked like disaster was certain? You ever found yourself in a position in life where there was absolutely no way out that you could ever see? Unless God intervened, you were dead meat. And then God opened an unseen an unexpected way to save you. That's how he worked in the past with the Red Sea. That's how he still works many times today for you and for me. The Bible talks about Sennacherib, who was um, an Assyrian, had surrounded Jerusalem. He's planning to destroy the city, great threats to the city. And Hezekiah, who was king at that time, he brought these threats and went before God in prayer. He just put his face on the ground and called out in times of desperation, God, unless you save us, we are completely dead meat. And God responded to Hezekiah's prayer in desperation. It says the next morning, 185,000 dead Assyrians were around the city. All these dead bodies. God responded to the, his people's prayers in times of desperation in the past 
God oftentimes responds with rescue to the prayers of his people in times of desperation in the presence. He works the same way. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that it's guaranteed that God will respond that way, but many times he does respond that way. We're looking at how God usually works. He responds to the desperate prayers of his people. What does it say, James 5, 16? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Another example is Joseph. Remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He refused to be seduced and she falsely accused him of a rape or attempted rape that he didn't commit. He was sent to jail for years for a crime he didn't commit. But God used that time in jail to refine Joseph's character and to prove and demonstrate his character. It became the very launching pad for moving him into the position of being second in command over all of Egypt. God didn't waste Joseph's pain and Joseph's struggles and Joseph's hurt. God used that pain, struggle, and hurt in a good way for God's glory and for his kingdom. That's the way God worked in the past and that's the similar to way how he works in our lives today. My friends, no wound in the life of a Christian is ever wasted. God uses it to refine us and he uses it to bring glory to him. Now, back into the text. We're sort of left at this point with two contrasts. We're left with Saul eating his fruit snacks, sitting under a tree, far from the action. And in love with Jonathan, who's in the action. And here's the little application point. We don't want to be like Saul, sitting under a pomegranate tree, far from the action, doing nothing, waiting for something to happen. We want to be like Jonathan, on the front lines, exercising daring faith, and seeing if God shows up to make a difference. Folks, too many times, I'm going to be honest, too many times American Christians are like Saul, not like Jonathan. We like our safety. We do not want to take a risk of obedience to God, for God. Too many American churches are just like Saul. They want to play everything safe. Oh, we don't have the money. Oh, we don't have the resources. Oh, we don't have the people. We can't do that for the kingdom because it's not all in our hands. And I think because there's no daring faith in churches that you don't ever see God show up in unexpected ways. Now, to tell you a little bit of Crosswind's story, I have really tried, and I think our elder board has also very much tried to make us a church of men and women with daring faith that takes risks like Jonathan, not a safe faith that is distant from the action like Saul. You say, well, how? Many of you know our multi-site story. 
we felt that God had given us the vision for opening other campuses around the Lakes region that continued to have the similar DNA of Crosswinds Church with the finger in the text, preaching and teaching the word of God. And we realized there was a number of people that were coming from Spencer and we began to look at opening a campus in Spencer. And then it finally came to the board meeting where we had to actually launch the campus. And I remember that board meeting well because we looked at the budget and we were hundreds of thousands of dollars short. There is no way looking at our current income stream that we can now open two campuses. And that meeting became, what kind of faith are we gonna have in our God? If God has been faithful in the past to bring us to this point, will he be faithful to carry us in the future? And I'll tell you, we chose the Jonathan route, not the Saul route. And we went forward doing a month by month examination of our budget. And as the campus launched, new people came, the giving came in and God provided and we made budget at the end of the year for two campuses, not just one. That's what daring faith is all about in practical life. By the way, we're at that same point right now. You may not realize that. But you think about this. We purchased the north side of the North Mall in Spencer. That was $300,000. We're renovating the north side of the North Mall in Spencer, plus doing a few renovations here. You know about that budget is $650,000. We have about 577 that have come in. Add those two together and they're just short of a million. We have an operating budget of just under a million. So we're looking at a revenue stream of just under $2 million in a 12-month span. That's a lot of cash. And unless God shows up, we ain't gonna make it. But you know what? God has been faithful to the mission of reaching people with Jesus that Crosswinds Church has had in the past. He has showed up every single time faithfully in the past and we believe he'll show up faithfully for every single time we need in the future. Now, are we being frugal? Oh yes, we've cut everything back to the bare bone on operating expenses. We have, I mean, you have to do that as well, but God will show up. He's been faithful. I like to think of it this way. William Carey had this famous line. It's when we attempt great things for God that we can expect great things from God. So we want to be a church that tempts those things. Second thing I want to point out in Jonathan's words, I'll just point this out briefly, but it's important. Offer yourself to be used by God. Don't demand to be used by God. Look at this little line that Jonathan says. It may be that God will work through us. He doesn't say, God, you have to work through my daring faith. You may work through my daring faith. But unless I actually go and fight the Philistines, unless I take that step, I'll never know. He's like, you know, if I die, I die. But I'd rather die trying than die rusting. Which one would you rather be? We're going to die. Let's die because we're trying something for Jesus rather than rusting out by doing nothing for Jesus. Back into the story. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you heart and soul. I'm gonna back you. 
Then we see this. A faith that dares great things for God will often experience great things from God. Then Jonathan said, behold, we'll cross over to the men, we'll show ourselves to them, and if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hands and this shall be a sign to us. So you see the plan? They're gonna climb down into the valley. They're gonna climb down on the side called Sina, which has all the rock crags and great handholds. Get to the bottom of the valley. You're like, peekaboo, hi, and see what they say. If they say, you just wait there, we're gonna come to you, then we'll wait. But if they tell us to come up, you remember that wall, that sheer-faced wall? We're gonna take that as a sign that God is with us because nobody would wanna climb that wall. Now, let's see what happens. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, oh, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us, we'll show you a thing. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into our hands. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel, excuse me. Remember, climbing this wall is an unlikely thing. It's known as slippery. There's a very small number of people in the world who can climb those walls. One of them is Alex Honnold. We showed you his video earlier. After that, not a ton. Now you wonder, what is this wall like? I was doing some research and I found a guy who was vacationing in Israel, brought his little drone action along, flew it up and actually took a drone video of this valley and showed you the wall where Jonathan climbed up. So let me go ahead and give it to you here. This is showing you the valley. You can see on the left side where the rock is there, that is Bozes. Remember, there's about 3,000 years of erosion going on at this point that sort of rounded it off in the top. You can see the flat section. That is where the Philistines were and back over, into the, over onto the left-hand side. So this is where Jonathan and his armor bearer did a free solo climb and they have their swords, or at least Jonathan has a metal one, <laughs> climbing up this incredible wall. Now the Philistines are, excuse me, yeah, the Philistines don't even think they're going to climb the wall. They go back to drinking beer and eating peanuts and just sort of ignoring them. But when Jonathan and his armor bearer come up over the top, the slicing and dicing begins because it's a completely unprotected section of the army. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within were it half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp and the field and among the people and the garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. Jonathan's like taking 20 guys out in nothing flat. He does the first cut, the armor bearer does the heart shot, finishes them off. 
What Jonathan begins though, notice God is the one who finishes. There's a great panic and then there's actually an earthquake. God adds an earthquake, which really starts to freak people out, doesn't it? Now, if you look at the end here, it says it became a very great panic. Look at the alternate reading in your text. It says a very great panic from the Lord. Like this is psychological warfare where God freaked them out and they all start killing one another. Now we see this. Daring faith rallies the faith of others. We leave Jonathan and his armor bearer behind. We return to Saul, sitting under the shade of his pomegranate tree, eating his fruit snacks. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Now, Saul can't see this directly, but the watchmen who are closer, who are calling out to one another, what's happening? The army is dispersing. The word dispersing in Hebrew is interesting. It means melting. So from their perspective, on the top of this mountain, it looks like it's literally melting the people right off of it as they run for their life. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who had gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. It's about time somebody took attendance. So Saul said to Ahijah, well, bring the ark of God here for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Last chapter, I got in a big trouble because I offered a sacrifice I shouldn't before the battle. Now Ahijah, you come and offer that sacrifice before we go into the battle. But look what happens. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. So Ahijah is starting to offer the, the bird offerings and then Saul says, stop, cancel it, cancel it. I'm gonna go into the battle after all. I'm like, Saul, it's not a good idea to like run into a church service and stop it. Now while Saul, okay, oop, I gotta flip. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. Well, there's not a lot of people, 600 people. And what do they have? Sticks and stones. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was very great confusion. So God has this panic going. So they're actually killing each other. By the time Saul and his army get there, the work is done. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, and all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing. They too followed hard after them in the battle. So the traitors traded back onto the right side. The guys who had hidden themselves in holes started to come out. And what we see is... Jonathan's faith wasn't just used by God is the beginning of routing the Philistines. And God didn't just go ahead and rout the Philistines after that, but his faith then rallied the faith of a whole bunch of other people around him. Isn't that the way it works? You have one person that God gives a bold and daring faith to, and then he rallies other people around them. 
That's the way it worked in the past. That's still the way it works in the present. And then it says, so the Lord saved Israel that day. Ultimately, it wasn't Jonathan who saved Israel, it was God. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Three points of application here on what bold, daring faith looks like. Number one, we've seen God wants us to have a faith that dares great things for God, like Jonathan. Number two, a faith that dares great things for God will often experience great things from God, not the kind of faith that sits home and does nothing like Saul. And lastly, a faith that dares great things for God often is used by God to rally others to action. But the question we have to ask ourselves before we leave is this. Who are we in the story? What's our faith like? Are we more like Saul? Or are we more like Jonathan? If we look at our faith, do we see ourselves far from the action, sitting under a tree, eating fruit snacks with our feet up? Or do we see ourselves willing to take risks willing to do things that are bold for God, that the only they, way they will work out is if God shows up to carry them through. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.